Thanks, Josh. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. Uh, I've already met a few people here for the first time today, so I want to underline the idea that uh, our two pastors are out of town, yea, barely out of state, yea, barely out of the country, off the continent, <laughs> as a matter of fact. They're vacationing together in Europe and having a wonderful time. So, a welcome to Union Church. On a typical Sunday, you would have either John or Anthony up here at this spot, and I've been invited to, to be here today uh, in their absence. So let me add my welcome to the ones you already heard. I want to mention a couple of, uh, of things before we get into the text of Habakkuk. Uh, first of all, I want to introduce some friends of mine to you. Their names are Todd and Karen Indahar, and they're sitting in the back. Todd and Karen, you guys stand and wave. Uh, a couple months ago, you guys, let's welcome them. You can feel free to applaud a little bit. Let them know they're welcome. A couple of months ago, uh, you, it was announced here that uh, Union began supporting our ministry of pastoral care to missionaries. And I wanted to let you meet these folks because they've been with us all this week in the guest suite downstairs and getting some time of respite and relaxation and encouragement. Uh, they'll head back, to, they'll leave uh, today and eventually be back in their ministry in Bangkok, Thailand, where they're uh, taking the gospel to the urban poor in Bangkok. So we're glad to be a part of their ministry this week, and you are a part of their ministry too, because you have helped them get some rest. You're also helping me fly to Orlando tomorrow. I'll spend the rest of the week there uh, in meetings of the agency where Todd and Karen are, uh, are serving under. So on behalf of us, my wife and myself, Murph, and uh, the ministries that we support and the missionaries we care for, thank you. It is an ongoing ministry that matters to us. Uh, let's I'll go ahead and throw up that end of that verse, if you would, Cody. Uh, let, me, let me finish the rest of this passage. Uh, go to the pre previous one, I think. Yeah, here we go. Uh, let me start reading verse 17, because chances are good this passage is the most familiar out of the book we're studying today, called Habakkuk. Verse 17 starts with, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, yields, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. If you are familiar with anything about Habakkuk, which is one of those obscure little, we call them the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, it's probably this passage, along with one other I'll mention in just a few minutes. And you may be wondering what we're doing in this book today. If you're not part of Union Church on a regular basis, uh, let me let you know, we are going through the Bible in an entire year. Very ambitious project, as you can imagine. <laughs> the guys have been doing a wonderful job at it. If you were here last week, you know, we did Ecclesiastes last week, which in the regular order of books, which the, we're following, the Song of Solomon would have been the book today. Uh, the guys asked me a few months ago, as they made their plans for this trip, Mike, would you be willing to speak on the Sunday we're out of town, I said, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, what book would it be? And they said, Song of Solomon. If you're familiar at all with that book, <laughs> you know that it's a bit of a challenging book to interpret, a challenging book to preach. Let's just say it's not one we would do on a Sunday when the kids are in the room. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's an interesting book. It's got great value. But I said to John and Anthony, you know, that's probably a book that would need a more familiar voice than mine. To, uh, to walk through. Oh, I basically chickened out on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> okay. I'll be brutally honest about that. But I said to the guys, I, I, I love the book of Habakkuk. He's my favorite Old Testament prophet. Any chance I could take that book out of order? 
uh, and they graciously granted my request. So, we're skipping ahead 13 books today because I am a coward. Uh, and, and we're going to be looking at this relatively obscure, very short, three-chapter book, uh, just five, five books before the New Testament, five books before the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and I, I really want to help, help us all get to know a man I sort of consider my friend, if we dare to say such familiar things about biblical characters. Uh, Habakkuk is someone I have come to know and appreciate for years now. I've had multiple opportunities like this to unpack his book in, in groups of various sizes and to spend some time in these three chapters and hopefully for us to walk away having learned not just from the text of his book, but from the example that he sets in his book, I think would be, it would be a privilege for me and I hope a joy for all of us. So uh, we are in Habakkuk today. In order to understand what we're going to be studying, you have to understand, this is the case in any Bible passage, what is the context of his life? What was going on that prompted him to say what he says? I've got a map, I believe, uh, in the first slide. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet between the falls of the two kingdoms of Israel. Uh, we've been studying the Israel, uh, history of Israel here, of course, and we know there was a civil war at one point. Uh, the nation of Israel divided in two. The northern section kept the name Israel. The southern section became referred to as Judah, the primary tribe that was there. Uh, through history, those nations went from bad to worse for the most part, especially the northern kingdom of Israel, which never had a good king, never had a faithful, God, godly leader. Uh, and things got so bad, and idolatry became so common, that eventually God said, enough. And in 722 B.C., as we've already studied in this series, the nation of Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They tried to take the south, but the southern kingdom had had some good kings. They had had some revivals. We've talked about some of those in the last few, few months. And, and because they weren't as bad off as Israel, God spared them. And they continued to, to live relatively independently. But then they hit a bad stretch. And things, again, went from bad to worse. They became very similar to their northern neighbors had been. And in 586 B.C., Babylon, which had become the dominant power, came and wiped out the southern kingdom of Judah and started what we call the exile. Habakkuk lived between those two cataclysmic invasions, and he lived in the southern kingdom. And as we'll see in a minute, as he looked around, he, he, he was suffering. He was in agony because he was a faithful, godly prophet who saw what a mess his nation was in. And he wondered, since he couldn't really tolerate it himself, how could God tolerate it? If you've heard of him, as I said, you've probably heard about the last few verses of his book, which, which we just read a moment ago. Verses that show incredible faith. Basically saying, even when my life caves in on me, when the fig tree doesn't prosper, there's no fruit on the vine, when every definition of wealth and prosperity is gone from my life, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The level of trust shown in those words and in that beautiful psalm that ends the book of Habakkuk is striking and compelling and, and calls to me. I hope it calls to you as well. Chances are good we want to be those kinds of people. I want to be that kind of Christ follower. I want to be one who can handle the problems, and even when things don't go the way I want them to, I want to be able to say what Habakkuk said at the end of chapter 3. And the mistake we often make is we focus so much on those few verses at the end of his book that we forget the other 53 verses that he wrote. 
Because there's a lot in the book. There's, there's two other chapters that don't get anywhere near as much attention as that last one. And I believe those first two chapters tell us how to get to the faith of chapter 3. And that if we read that beautiful psalm, as we just noticed, and we say, I want to be that person, well, rather than just pretend, might it be that God provided the other two chapters to show us how to get from where we are to where we aspire to be? That is my assumption as we start looking at this book today. So we're going to spend a lot of time in those first couple of chapters. And I think the path from here, where we are now, to there, where we yearn to be, that path might surprise us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the example we find in it. Thank you for your spirit and your word. Would you speak right now to each one of us, me included? Please speak, because we are your servants and we are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, John and Anthony have, have sought to alliterate every book and summarize each book with three words that all start with the same letter. <clears throat> when I saw that happening, I have to admit, I had a little internal wrestling match because I grew, my wife and I, in fact, grew up under a pastor who so loved alliteration that he alliterated every sermon. Most often with the letter P. I think that is the most alliterated letter <laughs> in my experience. And so it's created in me a bit of an allergy to alliteration, <laughs> quite frankly. But I will succumb to peer pressure, and I have alliterated the message of the book of Habakkuk. And here it is in three words. Turmoil, tower, and trust. There, I did it. Didn't even hurt too badly. <laughs> okay. Remember those three words. We're going to come back to them as we go through. So if, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk. It is uh, five books before the book of Matthew. That helps orient you a little bit. We're going to start with the turmoil. And, and that's really most of the first two chapters. The first chapter especially describe what's going on in the heart of this man. He, he, he's got questions. He's struggling. And he's honest about those questions. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 of, of chapter 1 as we get started. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice gets perverted. What's going on here? Well, he, he's looking around at the nation of, of Judah, and he sees rebellion, he sees sin, he sees injustice, he sees oppression and suffering, and he hates it. And he can't believe God would tolerate it. And he's basically asking two questions. How long and why? Rather than keep his struggles to himself, he decides to go to the source, go to the most powerful being in the universe, and ask these two probing questions. How long, from verse 2, and why, in verse 3. Pretty bold questions he's asking, aren't they? It'll get, it'll get bolder, trust me. When it comes down to it, can't most of our own questions about life be summarized in those two questions? How long and why? When we wrestle like he did, when we're frustrated like he is, when we have turmoil like he does, how long and why often summarize what's going on in our hearts in that moment? How long am I going to suffer like I'm suffering? How long before my kids finally come around, get their lives straight, become the people they should be? Why 
Does God seem so far away? Why am I alone? I never dreamed I'd be alone in this season of my life, and I am. Why? How long and why are very honest, often very close to the bone questions. And in Habakkuk's case, rather than hide those questions, he decides to go, as I said, right to the most important being and say, God, here's, here's, here's my questions. It's a bold moment for him. And in his case, which is most often not the case for us, hasn't been in my experience anyway, God gives a verbal response to these questions. And by the way, Habakkuk is a unique prophet in that we don't have any record of him turning to the people of God and saying, here's what God told me. Thus saith the Lord is the formula of a prophet in the Old Testament. God gives me, gave me a message to pass on to all of you. That's the prophetic role. Habakkuk isn't like that. It's all a dialogue between him and God, a dialogue we can learn from. And so in verses 5 and 6, God does respond. Let's go ahead and read verses 5 and 6 here now. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. We'll stop there, but you get a sense of, of what God is doing. God's responding to Habakkuk's complaint and saying, I do see how bad it is, Habakkuk. You assume I'm not doing anything, but I really am. Let me tell you what is in store. Let me tell you what's coming. And he refers to the Chaldeans, another name to describe the Babylonian Empire. And he basically warns Habakkuk, they're coming. The Babylonians are coming. And, and, and I'm bringing them up to punish my people for the very sins that are bothering you, Habakkuk. And God describes them through the rest of, of this passage. He, he describes them as the ultimate takers, these powerful Babylonians. They take homes that don't belong to them. They take orders from no one but themselves. They take prisoners that nobody can count. They take fortresses as if it were child's play. And God is basically opening a window into the future and saying, Habakkuk, here's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk doesn't like what he hears. <laughs> Put yourself in his place. Lord, wait a minute. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I want you to fix it. I don't want you to destroy us. Do something to bring back righteousness and joy and a revival and all the things we've had in the past. Make it like it was before, God. I don't want you to do that. And rather than hide his reaction to this revelation from his God, Habakkuk, in the theme of the book, makes a second complaint. The turmoil continues in what we call the second dialogue of Habakkuk. Uh, we're just going to read verse 13 that kind of summarizes uh, several verses as he talks to God and, and reacts by saying, Lord, I wanted you to do something, but not that. Anything but that. Verse 13 says this. Habakkuk talking to God now. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's basically saying, God, they're worse than us. Are you really going to get your hands that dirty? Using such a wicked nation? So You think we're bad? They're worse. The cure, your cure, God, is worse than the disease. And as we, as we look at what he's saying, and as we put ourselves in his shoes, he's saying they're more wicked than we are. They're idolaters. They worship that which makes them rich. And we're tempted, as we understand the give and take of this passage, 
to cringe a little bit at this point, aren't we? To say, Habakkuk, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> we're, we're tempted to say, are we allowed to talk to God like that? Is he going to get away with this? <laughs> okay. Is there a lightning bolt in his future? Uh, how dare you speak to the Almighty in such a presumptuous way? And yet that doesn't happen. We're tempted to, to cringe and say, Habakkuk, you, you better dial it back. But God doesn't do that. And I believe God doesn't do that because of a, a little, almost a hidden passage at the beginning of chapter 2. And we go now from turmoil to tower in my <gasps> alliteration. <clears throat> tower refers to chapter 2, verse 1, when Habakkuk just throws a little aside into this book. And he says this, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he'll say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaint. It's easy to skip over this verse, but I think it's significant. <clears throat> I think it matters. Because it reveals that he's not just venting. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's not just complaining. Yes, he's asking hard questions. But he sincerely wants a response. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to go wait for God to answer me again. Because I expect to understand. I want to understand. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to get this. I want to get my head wrapped around the actions and the inactions and the plans of the God of Israel. I'm going to go look for the response that I trust is coming. I think that fact puts this dialogue in a little different category than it might seem at first. It's not just a, a temper tantrum. It's not just him venting or whining. He's trying to understand. And God graciously continues the dialogue, which is almost as astounding as, as the first time. Because God is, is explaining himself to this human being. It's pretty remarkable when you stop and think about it. God does respond to the very complaints that Habakkuk brings up. And in his response, so we won't read the whole thing, I'll get to one verse in a minute. All through chapter 2, God makes a few points. He says, first of all, I'm not endorsing these men this nation. He says, the wicked are going to pay for their sins. He then says, I'm not endorsing their system of idolatry. Idolatry is bankrupt, it's empty, and it's rebellion. And I'm not saying that's better than the worship of the God of Israel. Don't interpret my acts that way. He says an amazing verse partway through when he says, I am in my holy temple. I have not lost control, Habakkuk. It looks like I'm losing control. It will look even more like I will have lost control. Prepare yourself, but I'm not. And then in verse 4, the one verse maybe is as famous as the ones we read at the end of chapter 3. In verse 4, he says this, first about the Chaldeans, then about his people. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Now here it comes. But the righteous shall live by his faith. You probably done any reading of the New Testament, you've heard that phrase before too. Because it's quoted not once, not twice, but three times by writers of the New Testament. It appears in Romans, it appears in Galatians, it appears in the book of Hebrews. And it's made a huge impact on the history of the church. Martin Luther, the famous German monk. Oh, the guys are in Germany today. <laughs> John and Anthony. They're probably enjoying some Martin Luther stuff today. Uh, this was the phrase, this was one of the verses that grabbed his heart and made him realize, we're doing it wrong. We need to change everything. We need to change the way we think about God, the way we obey him, 
And the Protestant Reformation was born out of the turmoil in this monk's heart in the 1500s. And this is one of the verses. This, these are the very words that, that prompted this massive sea change in the history of Christianity. The righteous will live by his faith. Hang on to that phrase. It's going to matter in just a few minutes. So let me summarize what God is saying here to Habakkuk through the end of chapter 2. He's saying, Habakkuk, I understand that it looks like the wicked are being rewarded for their wickedness. It looks like idols are stronger than the one true God of Israel. It looks like I've lost control and that I am losing. And I, God, am telling you, Habakkuk, none of that is true. Will you trust me? Boy, those last four words, right? Don't be limited by your impressions of what's going on, Habakkuk. There's more going on than you are aware. I am winning. I will win, even when it looks like I'm not. Will you trust me? In just a minute, I'll get to that question for us. Because Habakkuk isn't alone, is he, in questioning God's plan? And in wondering, is God really winning? <clears throat> and if he's winning, why does my life look like this? Why does our world look like this if God is winning? Good questions. We'll get to those two in just a minute. So at the end of this powerful couple of chapters of this dialogue between a human being and the creator, pretty remarkable, honest dialogue and gracious on God's part, we come to this psalm that ends the book in chapter 3. And we won't read the whole thing. We already read uh, some of the closing verses. But it's a psalm of praise and trust. We now get to the trust part of the alliteration. Because this psalm begins with a humble appeal to God at verses 1 and 2. Habakkuk says, God, revive your work among us. Do what you used to do. But as the psalm goes on, we, we see the patience that wasn't there before. Verses 3 through 15 give a beautiful description of, of God, a powerful one. That God is mighty and the, the mountains melt and the rivers boil. and God has done amazing things in the past. He's going to do them again. And then we have that powerful expression of trust in God that we read a minute ago. Let's put that back up on the screen again, Cody. The 16 through 19. Uh, next one, actually. I think, do we have 16 through 19 there again? There we go. I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. In other words, life is just as hard as it was in chapter 1. <laughs> okay. None of the circumstances have changed, but... Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. They're going to get theirs. God told me, I'm okay waiting for that time. And then, for now, he says, turning his mind to the present and the immediate future, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce fail, fields eat no food, the flock cut off from the fold, no herd in the stalls. If life gets worse than it is now, yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He's saying this. Bad days are coming. I'm quietly waiting for the invasion that I've been warned about. But that's not what matters most anymore. The world is going to cave in around me, but I see God in the midst of it, and I trust him. Can you see the contrast between this passage and chapters 1 and 2? It's almost like they're not written by the same person. 
These are written from a very different perspective, a very different heart, and a radically different mindset. His circumstances have not changed. Judah was a mess. Babylon is coming. That's been true all along. What's changed is Habakkuk. He has been radically transformed. He's moved from arguing with God to resting in God. He's moved from seeing the worst in the future to seeing the best. He's moved from turmoil to trust. And the reason for that is he has learned the principle of a word that I actually think I coined the first time I preached on this book many years ago. I invented a word. I'm a word nerd. I love words. Here's a word that I invented. The word is defeatery. A defeatery, in, in the Mike Gaston Dictionary, is an apparent defeat that is actually a victory. When you're walking toward it and when you're in the middle of it, it looks like a loss. It looks like failure. It looks like catastrophe and disaster. And in God's plan, there's all kinds of defeateries. When things look like failure, things look like, again, I said earlier, God is losing, when actually God is winning. You just have to wait to see the victory. There's all kinds of defeateries in our lives. I'm going to go over one in just a minute with you from my own experience. But we just got done celebrating, didn't we? The biggest defeatery in the history of the world. Because on Good Friday, we pictured the Son of God, sinless, perfect, on a cross, dying, bleeding, beaten up by human beings who laid hands on him. The most presumptuous moment in human history. Let's kill him. And he let it happen. He took it. Put yourself in the place of the disciples, and there were a couple of them watching. Some of the women were there. The guys had bailed. When you saw Jesus on the cross, wouldn't you have said, he lost? There was a phrase for it in, in Jewish culture. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. There's our rabbi hanging on a cross. He lost. The Romans won. The leaders won. And we're in trouble. We know they felt that way because we have the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking among themselves along the road. And they don't know all that's happened behind them in Jerusalem, but as they're walking along, they're, they're kind of comforting each other. No doubt with words like this. We had such high hopes. We thought he was the one. We thought he was going to win, and we were going to win with him, and Israel was going to win. And now look, he's lost. We've lost. It's a defeat. And a stranger joins them. The resurrected Jesus walks on the road with them for a while, hiding his identity from them. I picture a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> See, that's his conversation with these guys, who are convinced that God's cause has been destroyed. And the resurrected Jesus is walking along with them, talking about the Old Testament, talking about the prophecies, talking about what the real goal was, explaining to them, and it eventually dawned on them, that what looked like a defeat was God's victory. It was a defeatery. It's not the first and not the last. I think probably the, the, the biggest, the hugest in, in human history, as I said. Now, chances are, as we've heard this and we've read this, we're saying to ourselves, I really want to be the Habakkuk of chapter 3. I'm not, I, 
Habakkuk turmoil is not my thing. I, I don't want to be struggling and suffering and wrestling. I, I want the faith Habakkuk shows in chapter 3. And if you're like me, you want to get there. And there's a couple ways to do that. One is to pretend we're there. I'm really good at that. Are you guys good at that? No, you're not. Good for you. You shouldn't be. But I am. <laughs> I, we know the words. If you've been around Christians long enough and church long enough, you know the phrases, God is good all the time. Yeah, you, you know what to do on the surface, even when your heart is torn. And, and if, if you're around people that you don't feel comfortable expressing that to, we know how to look like we are Habakkuk of chapter 3. We can pretend. Might there be a better way to get there and pretend? Could it be that chapters 1 and 2 exist, not just to give us a narrative, but to show us the path? How do you get from the turmoil to the trust? How do you get to be the kind of person who could write the psalm of Habakkuk chapter 3? Could chapters 1 and 2 be there as an example for us to follow, to tell us we have the right to ask the hard questions of God? Like Habakkuk did. That when we get to our whys and our how longs, rather than pretend they aren't there, rather than go ahead and function as if everything's fine, might this passage, this whole book, be calling us to take the same bold steps as the prophet did? Who, remember, didn't say a word to God's people. His whole thing was him and God. Might there be value in between you and God? taking your how-longs and your whys to him. Do we dare to do that? Not only do I think we should dare, I think we must. I've got a quote from Carl uh, Emmerding. It says this, It is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. It's wise to follow the example of Habakkuk, to take our questions about God to God. The phrase I like to use is, I think we benefit from having personal Habakkuk moments. That when we have these episodes in our lives, and the how longs and the whys are really heavy, that we need a Habakkuk moment between us and God. I like to tell you about one in my life. I, yeah, it, it was the most significant one. And it took place many years ago. Uh, Murph and I were in our early 20s. I was serving at a, at a church, the church where we had met in Southern California. I was a junior high director. I was going through seminary at the time. Murph was uh, working in our high school ministry. We'd begun dating a, a few months earlier. It's a whole different story, a long one. I won't go into that today. A good one, happily, obviously. Uh, and we had gotten to the point in our dating relationship where we began talking about marriage. Remember the first, if you who were married, remember the first time you kind of dared to broach the topic? Like, how many kids would you want if we had kids? You know, <laughs> I was watching the reaction. We were at that stage. Not engaged, but thinking about becoming engaged to be engaged. It was kind of that, that mode. And uh, I was a junior high youth pastor, and, and Murph was in the high school ministry. Our high school group went off to a, a camp in the mountains above Los Angeles in Big Bear, those of you who know that area. And we did what you normally do before you send a, a youth group off on a trip like that. Okay, Lord, watch over them, keep them safe, give them journey mercies, whatever those are. It's <laughs> a phrase we use, right? If you've, if you've prayed those prayers or heard those prayers prayed. Uh, 
For this next section, Murph has slipped out the back because the picture I'm going to show on the screen is sensitive to her. Uh, if you are one for whom accidents are, are also delicate, you might want to close your eyes for a few moments because on the way down the mountain, the brakes went out on the church bus. And the end result was this. The pink circle is where my wife was sitting, my girlfriend at the time, right behind the driver. She heard him say, we're not going to make this turn. The whole bus knew as the bus accelerated and he rushed the way around several turns. They knew there was a problem and she heard him say, we're not going to make this one. Two students on the bus were killed, including the girl sitting next to Murph. She'd been baptized two weeks before in a church service. The, I'm <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> the story gets a little hard to tell even this long afterwards. Uh, she was very badly hurt. My wife was. She, we, we heard at the church, we got a call from the highway patrol. There had been an accident and two fatalities. They couldn't tell us who because the families hadn't been notified. I and the other pastors piled into a bus, piled into church vehicles, drove out to Victorville where they were all being treated, not knowing what we were going to find when we got there. And I had prepared myself all the way out there for the woman I thought I was going to spend my life with to either be gone or fine. I pictured her either having been one of the two fatalities or she'd be there comforting the parents as they drove up and, 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 and holding the kids. And I was ready for one of those two extremes. I wasn't ready for several days in an ICU. I wasn't ready for the massive facial injuries and the, the I don't want to go to the gore of it, but I wasn't ready for that. Uh, and it, it rocked my world. Uh, over the next few days, things were kind of a blur. She was released, I think, four days later, if I recall. We came back to uh, the San Fernando Valley, and I was a pastor. And I had some things I had to keep doing, even though I was in turmoil. We did the right things. We prayed the right prayers. And if I were God, I would have saved that bus. God didn't. And that was not okay with me. And in my role, halfway through seminary, planning to be a pastor for the rest of my life, what am I giving my life to? Am I okay with this? It was a Habakkuk moment, and I had to decide. I didn't know Habakkuk at the time. When I read the book, I realized what, what I eventually did was what I needed to do. Eventually, I forget how long, I had it out with God. I had Habakkuk chapter 1 conversation with him. Lord, I don't know what journey mercies are, but I know what they're not. That bus is not journey mercies. Explain yourself silence. And people were looking for the justification. People were talking about a nurse who was oppressed by the kid's faith and maybe even came to Christ and what was decided about that. I'm going, no! Billy Graham could have done that. Didn't need to be a bus with two dead kids and my future wife suffering. No, that, that's not enough. I, I, I wouldn't go there. That was not going to be enough. And I knew right away I wasn't going to find enough on the good side to balance the scales on the suffering side. That, I, that was a futile effort in my mind from the start. 
But I eventually did have several of these Habakkuk dialogues with God. Now, this isn't the only Habakkuk moment of my life, and I can tell you with confidence that in others of them, I have reached a point where things made better sense, where issues became a little clearer. I've got a bad back, for instance, and I wrestled with that for a long time, and over the years I saw God using that as a steering wheel for my life. Okay, I get the why here. And I wish I could say I eventually got the why to the bus accident, but I didn't. What came in this place, as I went through the motions of ministry for a while, and was having this honest conversation with God, uh, I came to the re realization that in this case, I wasn't going to understand it. And it came through a passage we've also looked at in the last few weeks. Uh, it was somewhere, I think it might have been at another funeral, I, I don't recall exactly where, but somebody quoted the end of the book of Job, where God says to Job, who also was having a Habakkuk moment, where were you when I made the foundations of the earth, Job? God was basically saying to Job, and I believe was saying to me, Mike, you aren't going to understand this. I cannot explain to your satisfaction why in my plan I was capable of stopping this and I didn't. I, I cannot explain this to you in a way that will be sufficient. Can you serve me anyway? That was a hard question to answer. And I'm here, so you know the answer. <laughs> there's, there's no suspense, but for a while there was suspense. I came across a quote this week that, that really described this whole process for me. Uh, I forget the name of the person who wrote it. Uh, let's see the quote. Here it is. Oh, I've got it on my notes here. Uh, Udall, Jessica Udall says this. She's talking about other conversations like Habakkuk's elsewhere in Scripture. She says, in all these conversations, God's willing to interact with those who are asking him questions, but he'll not fully explain every detail of his plans to them. The fact remains, he is God, and they are not. His plans and purposes will come to pass, and mercifully, they will be for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, but those plans do not need to be pre-approved by those who love him, because there's only one who is all-powerful and able to know the end from the beginning. Those plans do not need to be pre-proved by those who love him and are impacted by them. I can acknowledge the truth of that sentence while hating it hmm. with everything in my heart. Because I want pre-approval power. I, I want God to come to me in advance and say, is this okay if I do this? I want veto power. No, God, not that. But that would put me in his place, wouldn't it? That would make me God and him my servant. That would flip the relationship in ways that would ultimately be catastrophic. If I were God, you'd all be in a world of trouble. <laughs> okay, so I wouldn't be very good at it. But acknowledgement of that fact means I have to accept that what she says there is true. That God will move his plan forward. And what looks like a defeat is actually a victory, even if it means there's a lot of how longs and a lot of whys. And even if my dialogue with God doesn't get the verbal responses and the clarity that Habakkuk got, I don't have a right to claim that. That was a gift to Habakkuk. You don't claim the right to a gift 
More often than not, in my experience, we have to reach the point where we say, okay, God, I'm going to pour this out to you because I know I need to do that. I know I shouldn't hide this. I know I'm not going to pretend. And I also know, now that I've read Habakkuk, I know there's a process here where when we dare to follow the path of the prophet, we can maybe get to chapter 3. But there's no shortcut. You've got to go through chapters 1 and 2. That I've come to believe, with every fiber of my being, that we build our faith by daring to ask the hard questions. That whether it's through clarity and understanding or through developing patience to wait for, for the lack of clarity and understanding, either of those end results makes me a stronger Christ follower, makes me lean harder on his arms and not my own, his wisdom and not my own, makes me understand the roles of master and servant. All of that is good and all of that is needed. So can I invite us, as we finish this time in Habakkuk, to follow his path, to dare to ask the hard questions? Surely to not pretend. If you're one who usually pretends, stop pretending. You don't need to. The turmoil is okay. It's even natural. And once you acknowledge it, you can have a Habakkuk moment, or two, or three, or 500. Who knows? And when you have them, God does good things. It will build our faith to follow the example of this man. Let me close with this quote. It was very timely, actually. When I read it, I realized, okay, this is current. This is, this is now. This is virus, and this is chain supply, supply chain problems. And, but this, I love the way it's worded. In other words, writing about Habakkuk and the faith he, he learned, though the supply line should fail, and the shelves be bare, and the economy tank, and the virus come to our own city and street and even our home. Yet, even then, this newly humbled prophet will rejoice in the Lord. Will we? Not in our supplies, not in our health, not in our own security, not even in the defeat of the enemy. There is one constant, one unassailable surety, one utter security, one haven for true joy in the most challenging of journeys, God himself. He holds himself out to us as he removes our other joys. Will we lean anew into him? That's what Habakkuk learned. That's what he's taught us. I hope as we walk away from his book, we've got a new freedom, a new invitation, a new welcome mat for our turmoil in the throne room of the King of Kings because it's there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who experienced and showed us what a defeat becoming victory really is, would you guide us to walk that same path, to trust you in that same way? Would you build our freedom to come to you with the hard stuff? Would you be gracious to us as we open our hearts to you? And would you make us the, not just the people of Habakkuk chapter 3, but also the people of Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2 as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.